and welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what aged like fine strawberry wine and what aged like milk. I'm Izzy, I use sincere pronouns. I'm Kit, I use she, her pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall-related things, at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. Okay, so we finished talking about Animorphs and Mandalorian. I'm upset. <laughs> if you want to I'm, hear it all, check out the bloopers. I'm driving to Tennessee to go cry on Danielle's couch. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I'm fine. I'm not fine. Anyway, today we're reading the first part of the third book of Martin the Warrior, chapters 28 through 34. Wee! Let me tell you, yesterday when I was reading all of this, I read book 33 of Animorphs, read this bit, book, yes, book 53 of Animorphs, this bit of Martin the Warrior, and then book 54. Let me tell you, the emotional whiplash... <laughs> Content warnings are slavery, bodily harm, poison, bird, bird. savage tribe tropes, claustrophobia, drugging, PTSD of a sort. Because, like, it's never, There's... like, out and out explained as PTSD, but, like, the way you see Feldo acting as well as the kids, kind of, like the other traveling group, it's like, these guys are definitely experiencing some PTSD. They're having some problems. They're having a bad time. They're having a bad time. All right, so Brome and the Rose Hip players are heralded as heroes. The actors soak up the applause, Brome enjoying it a bit too. Feldo chooses, though, to wander off into the evening, not used to the attention. Uh, the freed slaves marvel at the food that the players have stocked in their larder. One little mouse even going so far as to swipe candied chestnuts. When his mother scolds him, Roanoke scoops the little one up and says he can have them. They share their food. Roanoke also, then asks, I, I forgot to put this in because I didn't realize the little guy was going to be important later on. Um, but His name is Fluffle. His name is Fluffle. And his mom is... Let me get to it. Okay, so the mouse is Fluffle. And where's the mom? Where's the mom? Personally? Yeah. I think it's Purslane. Yeah, yeah. Purslane is his mom, and his dad is Groot. <laughs> I am Groot. I am Groot. <laughs> I am Groot. But yeah, Fluffle, Fluffle does end Fuffle. up- Or Fuffle. Fuffle does end up making repeat appearances. So when I suddenly me mentioned Fuffle in the notes, th it's, it's this the same mouse. mouse. Yes. <laughs> uh, Roanoke uh, asks the mouse wife if she'd overheard an earlier comment correctly. She knew how to candy nuts- the mousewife says yes and proceeds to list off what else she knows how to cook before being enslaved. Like, literally, this mousewife can do it all. Um, Roanoke says that that's enough for her. She and any other creature who wants to cook can have full run of the rations. Uh, so several get to work as several others begin sharing old songs to pass the evening in cheerful good company. If you would like to read the the old songs. Okay. Hey, give me a cake and bring me ale, and pudding ripe with plums. Some cider dear, so cool and clear, to swill round teeth and gums. Some round and golden mellow cheese, and light brown nut bread if you please. With honey made by happy bees, and I will be contented. Oh, fie the creature with long face, who nibbles small and can't keep pace. With tartlets filled full berry fruit. 
and yellow meadow cream to boot, or soup with pepper and hot root, and burdock ale to quench it. Oh, eat up, neighbor, drink up, friend, may good fortune have no end. Success to all that you intend, and leave the pots till morning. <laughs> I love that last line. And leave the pots till morning. That is very much a holiday They're gonna tradition. dry out and get sticky and be harder to clean. Not if you soak them. If you put some water in there, just soak them. <laughs> that's that's why that's what you, you're you're just soaking them so they're easier to scrub later. That's why you yeah, leave them. I guess. Anyway, so we get the first real feast in the book and it is greatly enjoyed by young and old, doubly so by the young who were practically born into slavery. Mhm. And, like, this really is, like, the first real feast we've had in the book. Like, the others have enjoyed, like, good meals, but they've only been good meals, not a laid-out feast. And I applaud Brian's restraint because, you know, any other book, he would have had a feast, like, right off at the start of the book. Um, But, you know, that wouldn't fit the mood of this book. And even if he's made some odd choices, this choice worked pretty well. But I do feel it's a little preemptive. I think that I have less issues with this bit pacing wise than I do with stuff that happened later on in this bit of the book. Because I think that this is a good moment because I think the rosehip players in particular understand these people need to feel like they've won to keep their morale up. Yeah. Because it is so easy for these people's morale to fall because of where they have just escaped from. Yeah. So if they can keep their morale up and also feeding a bunch of people who are probably like next to starving so that the next day they have energy to run. Mm Mm-hmm. Granted, though, everybody should have gotten sick. Yeah, because it's like, it's funny because we, we have, you know, in Matameo, Brian was so keenly aware of this. Like, you don't feed people who are starving a lot of food. But then again, the food that they're eating is all fairly, well, simple-ish. Yeah, it's, they, it's the they don't of... have the same kind of richness to it because all of the rations are meant for like to be traveled with yeah the rosette players don't have a lot of like fresh fresh stuff yeah like they, so they... it is probably less rich and a little bit easier on their stomachs yeah because like you also have to think like they talk about like meadow creams and like like other desserts and stuff like plum cake brown nut cheese wheat the farl, cheese the cheese is easy to keep up with. The plum cake could be made with mm-hmm. preserved plums. Like exactly. things like that is all stuff that's easy to keep. Yeah, like meadow it's, it's cream with... was probably like something they got recently. Yeah. And it's probably one of the only like quote unquote fresh things that they have. Yeah. So unless it's like... if we completely misunderstand what meadow cream is, I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just kept vague because, you know, it's like everyone kept getting on Brian about the milk. So he's like, fine, green sap milk. It's a magical tree milk that works the same as regular milk. Leave me alone. <laughs> <sighs> it is well-described food, though. And yet again, we are all just salivating, wanting what Brian is making. Mm-hmm. Bala is a horrible get to Selendine, playing up on her body image worries to get her food from her. And I am very much like, why is this here? It's just like, a, it's just like, it's, it's Bala who like, he wants her food. So it's like, oh, we're going to 
play up that she's a vain squirrel and she wants to keep her girlish figure. And it's like, she's a squirrel. Like, the thing is, the thing is, is on her plate is salad and cheese. Yeah. It is a heaping plate of salad and cheese. So it's not even like she went after all of the heavier foods to begin with. And Balazs just so much of a glutton that he's just like, uh, you've been getting a little bit plump. Why don't you, you know, give me your food? And she's like, have I? And, like, if this were a vermin, it would absolutely be portrayed as, you know, like, he's in the wrong and he's being bad here. Yeah, and he's trying to coerce her into doing, like, some of the, like, labor, like, chopping wood and stuff. Which, granted, she probably doesn't normally do anyway. But it feels bad in this moment. This is definitely, like, supposed to be played up for laughs. And I think it doesn't... For, For us now, in this era, after, like, the Me Too movement and stuff like that... Mm-hmm. And, like, bo- b- positive body image movements and things. Like, anything to do with positive body image for women or just anybody in general, but in particular women. Mm-hmm. This doesn't sit right. Back nope. when this book was written, it was still not good. But there was less of that cultural awareness. So, it, it nowadays, this this aged like milk. Yeah. And like you definitely this is see one that, of our like, age, like, okay. it, like you definitely see that, especially like in British writing of like, you're only allowed to be fat and jolly if you are an old, like if you're a housewife or if you're like a friar, otherwise, you know, oh, they're fat, they're lazy or, oh, you need to watch your figure. It's like there's very... stop being pretty. Yeah. And it's like, that's not how this works. There's very specific I... characters who are allowed to be fat and a young maiden isn't one of them. I... I'm adorable. Would you like to know what else I am? I'm fucking fat. <laughs> I am adorable and fat. And, and fat is not a negative uh, descriptor. It is a state of my body and I like being soft and fat. Kit is a stick. Uh, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> you used to be a stick. I used to be, but I have gotten comfortable and just let myself relax. And now I've got hips enough that I can body check people. Oh, good. Nice. Yeah. You've become no. more sturdy. Yeah. Basically, I am comfortable. I am at, like, if you if we go by, like, the outdated BMI, I'm on the higher end of my healthy weight range. But yeah, I am nice. within, like, what they call a health... Yeah, BMI is fake. Don't listen to BMI. Um, but, like, no, like, I've got a little tum. I've got hips, God knows. Um, but I, I, you know, like, I work out enough so that I don't hurt. I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm just trying to, you know, not hurt, you know. So, yeah, yeah. And I enjoy sweet things and stuff from now on. But, you know, I just I don't drink soda and I try to avoid like certain things in my food. And that helps me stay at a comfortable weight. You know, I like eating. (laughs) I like food. (laughs) We're like at different ends of the spectrum where you don't keep on weight the same way that I do. Right. But we're both normal and healthy and look fantastic mm-hmm. like it's funny because like i don't consider myself skinny i consider myself now at like a natural range but i'll still have family members going like oh you're so thin i'm looking down at my hips and my, like I, like my regular normal tummy and i'm just like this is thin like i'm comfortable i'm at a normal weight it's just he, people's perception of like weight is really whack yeah, Western society has kind of fucked us up on that one. Mm-hmm. 
and it's starting to it started to fuck the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. We we live in hell. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Balash shouldn't have done this, and we're gonna dunk him into the ocean. Yes. Uh, it's like you were doing so good, and then you did this. Jail. Jail for Balaw, 100 years, no rations. <laughs> uh, the food is enjoyed by all except for Feldo. Barkjohn notices his son is missing and asks if anyone's seen or served him. The fussy mousewife, I don't know if that's Jem uh, or Gem, uh, uh, says yeah. she'd seen him wander to the edge of camp. Uh, suppose he thought he was too good for them all. She is rude. It's like now that Grum is dead, or not Grum, uh, freaking Droop. Now that Droop is gone, it's like, oh, we need someone else who's going to be like the contentious voice of dissent. She's just this weirdly- old mouse wife. Yeah, it's like, after all she's been through, although I guess this could be a coping mechanism, but it still feels really weird. It's weird because like, as soon as they're out of the situation, it's like they all slide back into what Brian considers their quote unquote natural states. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they all have trauma. They should not be acting mean to each other like this. Well, trauma doesn't always mean you're nice. Trauma sometimes means you lash out. Yeah. God knows I've been dealing with that, but yeah. Long story. I'll Uh, tell you in private. uh, Yeah. Uh, Brome leaps to his defense, scolding her and reminding her that if it wasn't for Feldo and uh, Kila, Kayla, I don't remember how we were pronouncing it. I think, I it's think it Kayla. was Kayla. That's how Who I was knows? saying it. I don't remember. Uh, they'd still all be slaves. Uh, she bustles off in a snit and Barkjohn thanks Brome. Barkjohn asks if Brome's seen his son and Brome says no, but he's sure he knows where he is, out patrolling by himself to keep the camp safe. He'll go take some food to him. And of course, yes, Feldo is resting, looking out over the sea. Uh, He wrestles with an inner rage, a deep-set gnawing hatred for Badrang, Marshank, and all it stands for. He hears Brome coming, grabs for his weapon, but relaxes when he hears his young friend's voice. Uh, Brome offers the food to Feldo, and he accepts it. While they split the meal, Feldo scolds and compliments Brome for what he'd done. Greatly foolish, but greatly daring. Uh, Brome gives Feldo some cordials, and then settles down uh, to his own quiet worries, admitting his fears about his sister, Grum, and Martin. Were they still alive? Feldo assures him that they'll be fine. As long as Martin is with them, he's no doubt the brave warrior mouse will lead them back with an army to help them all. At the mention of an army, Brome notices a dozen or so beasts heading their way along the clifftops. And I'm surprised they were allowed to spot the spies this early. Say that five times fast. Um, And, but like, I'm glad they did because it leads into a, like, I I thought this was weird when I was initially reading it, but considering what happens later in this sequence, it was a good setup. Because like, this is a sequence that kind of starts, it starts Feldo's fall from grace in Brome's eyes like he starts to lose him as a hero figure and starts to see like oh this is just another damaged creature you know as much as anyone else you know mm-hmm. um but it's still it's just like part of me thought oh they're gonna see the camp and the you know the feast is gonna get you know they're gonna get recaptured but it's like no no Feldo and Brome take care of it and the actual payoff in the end is much better than what I expected from this honestly sequence, it's so good it is like Brian like Again, for all we've complained about, like, the odd pacing and odd story choices in this book, 
this sequence is probably one of the ones that makes up for it. It's like I keep seeing the little glimmers of like why this is people's favorite book because when Brian finally gets on his metal and writes really good instead of like weirdly racist or offhand or you know like stubbornly sticking to the tribal trope thing this book um he's on the ball and this is this starts one of the sequences that really is on the ball and a joy to read illegal it's very good (laughs) um Uh, two of the weasels in the group are trying to follow the cart tracks in the dark. When Hisk complains, why is it taking so long? They snap back that the cart has go- uh, been through this area multiple times. They need to find the freshest tracks in the dark. Hisk can give it a rest. Why not wait until morning when they can actually see? A murmur of assent makes Hisk take a step back. He reminds them all that he's Badrang's captain and he's following Badrang's orders. Anyone want to question Badrang? Uh, he gets murmurs and shuffling paws until, as, a res- as a response until one beast calls out his name and that he's made a point. Hisk laughs and reminds them only Badrang calls him Hisk. He's Captain Hisk to them. And, like, Brian, like, I, he so much loves to play up the loyalty between species, especially when it comes to the vermin. You know, like, if you just think about how um, Badrang and Cog only see each other as true rivals. Like, they don't consider any of the other creatures in their horde as threats because they aren't the same species. But, like, the minute, like, a weasel or another creature starts to get a little bit of power, they're like, "Uh uh-uh, no, y'all are under me now. I'm the superior. It doesn't matter that we're the same species. Mm -hmm. And it, like, you you make a good point, um, if you want to read your point, but, um, Yeah, like, we've seen in the past few books, like, where vermin, when they get to higher stations, they stop treating their fellows like equals. Um, It's it's definitely Brian making a commentary on hierarchies of power, and how power corrupts absolutely, etc, etc. And, like, right now in the British History Podcast that I'm listening to, um, we're in the Norman Invasion right now with William the Bastard. And, like, this reminds me a lot of, you know, you say power corrupts. Well, one of the reasons, like, you, when you actually look at the history, like, there are so many times where William should not have kept England. He should have been killed. His forces should have been driven off. But, like, it's the scene in Emperor's New Groove when he pulls down the map. By all means, it doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> but the reason William got it is because by that point, the English nobles were so soft and so like used to just being the boss and easy living that the minute the knights rode up and were like, Hey, we're going to kill y'all. The nobles were like, Oh, uh, well, we'll work for you instead. Just don't kill us and don't take our lands, which of course he usually ended up doing later anyway, because ew, you're just English. Like I'm a Norman and you're just English. Ugh. Um, (laughs) But, like, literally, there's a scene where, like, Norman, like, okay, trigger warning for genocide, but William the Bastard basically cleaned out the northern parts of the island. And we're talking, like, an impact that was seen for generations, rippled up to this day, you know. Um, You know what the Pope did? The Pope was like, oh, you've still got an English guy serving as a bishop in one of your dioceses? Oh, no, we're going to fix that. I'll get a Norman in there right away. No, you know, power corrupts. It absolutely does. And here we see that with 
Hisk, you know. You know, we even see that in the very first book when, um, when, uh, evil rat. Clooney? Clooney, yes. When Clooney gives that one rat control and the rat starts wearing his armor, just because he's given like this modicum of authority, he starts taking a mile, you know. I mixed that up, but whatever. (laughs) It's fine. Uh, so Feldo catches on that they're horde beasts very quickly. Uh, he also realizes that they're following the cart tracks and launches into a plan with Brome. They obscure the cart tracks for a ways, return to where they'd started, and begin to lay a false trail using the butts of the javelins to make fake cart tracks, leading away from camp. And the weasels take to the false track, convincing themselves that it must be fresh and new, uh, Hisk is please ordering them to carry on tracking. What I really love about this bit is they're like, oh, the tracks get deeper here and there's no smell of badger uh, on the ground. So the badger must have gotten onto the cart. It's a very logical leap to make. Like they're they're like, hey, we're tracking. We see this thing that suddenly changed. But, you know, why would it change like this? Well, clearly, you know, badger's hurt. So the badger hops on to take a break. It's very good. It is. Uh, the tracks lead them out west. Lead them west out into some furs, uh, which, uh, as Kit found out, and I also didn't know, is another name for gorse. Yeah, we learn new things. Yeah, and uh, gorse is a very pretty plant. Yes. Uh, so they get out into some furs, damp sandy grass, and finally reed grass. Hisk keeps whispering orders, silence over everything. They're to note the position of the camp and report back to Badrang. That's all. Feldo stops them when they hit Swampland and finds a place for them to hide. He cuts a throwing stick for Brome. While doing so, he warns Brome off from killing Hisk. He has a score to settle with the weasel for the beatings he'd gotten in the past. Uh, the trackers, of course, reach the end of the tracks uh, and have just enough time to muse about how they'd get a heavy cart into the marshlands before a weasel just disappears into the muck. Uh, Hisk and another start sinking as well, and in a panic, the trackers scramble backwards. Uh, a rat tries to look for some of their lost companions, uh, getting a javelin through his open mouth for his trouble. Good God, Brian. We're definitely in the last part of the book. Yeah, Brian's like, I, I have some, some, some vicious fighting to depict. Let's go. Yeah. I don't think anything can ever top, uh... Uh, all of the hares getting just absolutely drowned in in uh, uh, sea rats, though. I don't know. The, the scalding buried under a tunnel in uh, Redwall is pretty dang close. Cooney's yeah. Horde Beast. I, think, I still think that one tops for the most horrific death. Yeah. Just... Uh, it's not good. It's not good! Brome has... No stomach for killing. He's horrified as Feldo calmly dispatches another beast. When Brome protests, Feldo tells him to hand over the javelins, stay put, rattle the reeds, and be a distraction. Leave this to him. And it's interesting that, like, Brian is already setting Brome up as, like, Brome is absolutely willing to put himself in danger, but he's not willing to kill. So it's like, is he being set up to become an actor after all? Or is he going to become like a father of the Abbey figure for Noonvale? Because like more and more in this book, we start to see Brome set up as like, he actually is thoughtful. He does have the potential to be a leader. He just needed that wandering spirit. Like, 
if not beaten satisfied. out of him, yeah, satisfied, tempered like a blade. Like it needed to be tempered down into something manageable. Uh, we do get a little bit of payoff for this because there's a little bit later where, like, Brome starts tending to people, like, as a healer, which is really nice. Again, that's why I think he might be getting set up as, like, a, a father abbot kind of figure for Noonvale. Yeah. Because he's going to yeah. come out of this and be like, hmm, I don't like fighting, and actually I would like to stay home where it is comfortable and safe now. <laughs> or stay with the Rosehip players. Or with the Rosehip players. Because the Rosehip players, from what we've seen, don't typically kill people. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that actually gets brought up. They're not fighters, they're tricksters. Mm-hmm. They prefer to trick their way out of situations and run because mm-hmm. it's safer. But if so, you kill somebody, then it's a revenge situation, which never ends well, as Brian yeah, likes to and, point out. Well, and the Rosa players also know this being, you know, uh, 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 theater kids, thespians. They're thespians. They understand. They've read William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare. Who I've decided is canon in Redwall now. <laughs> I mean, considering what the hares like to quote and act like, absolutely. William Shakespeare? Ah, uh, God, fuck off. Shakespeare. I'm, I'm murdering you. I, I'm coming to. Listen, so... you, you can't drive to Tennessee and Wyoming at the same time. I know I'm safe for like at least a few more weeks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the trackers fall for it, setting spears and arrows Brome's way. Brome lays flat as the missiles fly overhead, realizing the truth of his adventure now. It was life or death no longer a game. Like, he didn't bat an eye at stripping clothes off of a dead body, but, like, actually actively seeing someone get killed shakes him. And I find yeah, that interesting, it's, too. It's different, because when he was, like, captured and put in, um... When he was captured by Badrang, he probably saw dead bodies. And being yeah. that he's from like a a like pa- uh, pastoral, like very idyllic village, like people die. We do have to remember that death used to be a lot closer than it is nowadays. Yeah, so. yeah death used to be a lot closer to people, and so like dead bodies is is just something people can be used to, but. Um, murder is something completely different. Izzy, are you stimming with your brace? No, I'm fixing it. It's okay. too tight. I, I accidentally tightened it too many. Everyone enjoy some Velcro ASMR. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Feldo uses a javelin to slay two more beasts and a rat takes the third shot instead of Hisk. This tips Hisk off, and he sees Feldo, who flees back into the swamp. Enraged to have lost over half of his forces, like, literally, Feldo killed five people. Like, five people, the swamp took two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hisk gives chase. Like, Feldo was just like, I'm just gonna boop, 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 done. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> Heck are you. Heck are you. Um... Brome listens in the now silent clump of reeds, trying to psych himself up to go find and help Feldo. He doesn't have javelins, but he has the uh, throwing stick that he can use as a weapon. Luckily for him, though, Feldo finds him and ushers him out of the swamp. The remaining horde beasts are well and turned around in the swamp. Feldo is sure they'll be lucky just to get out, let alone back to Marshank. 
Rome tries to apologize for his self-perceived cowardice. Uh, Feldo is quick to say that he wishes he could still be like Brome, unable to take a life. It's the years of his life lost to the tyrant that had made him like this, happy and able to slay the beasts who'd hurt others. And I make a note about, like, this feels like some, like, straight up feels like some war veteran vibes right here. Like, there's something you lose when you kill another living, like, intelligent being. Like, even if it's in self-defense or for a good cause, like, you still, something hurts inside you and it's never going to quite heal, you know? Hello, I read book 53 right before reading this and I couldn't stop thinking about Jake. Jake does a war crime! Jake does so many war crimes! <laughs> Discord said no, <laughs> I'm not allowed to hear your scream. It's, it's something that you see a lot in, like, I feel like you see this a lot in media from, like, just after the war, and weirdly enough, it pops up in the 90s a lot, too. Because I remember seeing the sentiment in other stories that I read around that time that were, like, definitely too old for me. Um, because it was this like the Vietnam War ended the Cuban Missile Crisis like mm -hmm. we were just coming out of a lot of very heavy conflicts well we'd also had the Gulf War which people like never talk about but that was definitely a thing that happened Venezuela things like that mm -hmm. like there were people coming back from these conflicts as well as like the Cold War was like officially ended in the 90s and so there, we have all of this, like, people after the war things, because we're now in a quote-unquote time of peace, which wasn't actually true, but mm -hmm. American propaganda. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that it kind of became the, the like, the thing to, to have in media. Yeah. Because a lot of the people writing the media were kids when all this shit was happening. Mm-hmm. Or heck, the veterans themselves who came back and managed to find some kind of semblance of comfort in writing, you know, you can turn your experiences yeah. into a story and it makes it easier to get out. Yeah. Um, no, Feldo never wants Brome to lose his innocent heart. And I had a like something, something letting an evil like this into your heart makes it makes it easier every time, no matter the reasoning. And then Kit had a very good bit of point, yeah. if you'd like to read it. Okay, so I'm just going to read this verbatim. Um, you know, like, it's not wrong. The Bible and the Christian faith in general gives passes for certain kinds of killing, mainly self-defense. But now that Izzy brought it up, and as much as I harp on Brian for never allowing the characters to get revenge, he isn't wrong. It is pretty strict in the Bible. You defend yourself. Once the enemy is gone, you stop. Like, once they stop attacking you, you stop attacking them. Don't lose yourself to anger, for wrath is a sin as deeply evil as any other. <sighs> it's also like that in um, the Torah and Talmud. Uh, rabbinical teachings is very similar. Mm -hmm. I mean, it gestures at the fact that they share a base faith. Uh, when they get back to camp, only Bala and the baby mouse Fuffle, the candied nut thief, are still awake. Like, Fuffle was having a grand old time during the feast. Fuffle. He was having the best time. Fuffle, 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 Fuffle. Fuffle, Fuffle, Fuffle. You do misspell it as Fluffle multiple times, I which think, is fine, because, uh, like... That's Google Chrome. That's not me. Or Google potential. Documents. Potentially. Uh, 
I've changed it in, in most places where I caught it. Obviously not all of them. And I couldn't change one comment you put Fluffle in it. But uh, this is not me trying to harp on you. It's just like that's a very easy one to make. Mm-hmm. He's a baby mouse. That's why Fluffle I... sounds like it should be his name. No, I legit think that is Google Docs. Because like when I was, when I was working on um, updating my character for my campaign's uh, journal which I keep partially to keep notes and partially to keep track of how he's feeling about things. Um, it kept trying to <laughs> autocorrect certain other characters' names. And I'm like, no, I've been writing this 50 times now. Stop trying to recorrect the name. Dawood is spelled with a W. Heck you. He's Jewish. <laughs> you it's know spelled you can, with a W. You know you can turn autocorrect off, right? Yes, but I need it for other things. Because <laughs> no, I am not a good speller. That's fair. Uh, so yeah, uh, the 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 two are eating all of the feast leftovers and drinking deeply, musing, uh, and and Bal- Bala muses that Fuffle probably should have been asleep ages ago, <laughs> um, and and Bala laughs, saying the young mouse was just like him, hating to see good food left uneaten. Fuffle agrees in his baby speak. Speak lots of food, make you big. He's a mouse. Um, it's a baby. The squeak. other two like f- baby squeak. <laughs> Um, and of course, like, Feldo and, um, Brome also set down to eat the leftovers. They're like, oh good, there's still food. Bala hasn't eaten all of it. Yeah. Which, some miracle. Just, I legitimately think that hares have, like, a bag of holding as their stomach. Um. <laughs> it's also entirely possible that, like, he's just taking his time. Yeah. But even taking your time, you can still only eat to a certain point. Who knows? Who fucking to be fair, hares in real life have exceptionally fast metabolisms and have to eat, like, twice their body weight or something like that. Yeah. Eh, it still bugs me. Yeah, I know, like, I know. Again, you know I'm not body shaming, I just, I really dislike the bottomless... Okay, correction. It, it, it I being dis- played as a joke in these books feels bad. Yeah, like, I don't mind the bottomless whole stomach to an extent. It just, it depends on how it's played. And the hairs, it's definitely, like, the thing is, I think that what it, why it bothers us so much is because it is written almost exactly the same as when the vermins do it, but when the hairs do it, it's supposed to be funny. Funny in a relatable way, but when the vermin do it, it's supposed to be, like, bad. Yeah. Funny bad. And it's like, but they're the same. This is the same thing. You have given... We, what color, like, what, 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 find the difference between these two sheets of paper. They are the same. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> anyway. We live in hell. Um, <laughs> with a few hours left until dawn, Badrang uh, and his crew pause before returning to the fortress. Two advanced scouts return, warning him that Clog has taken the fortress. If we remember from last time, Clog was like, Badrang has left and taken all of his men with him. It is my fortress now. I built this fortress. You built this fortress. It's my fortress now. My city now. Once Badrang confirms that Clog's only posted... Two wall sentries, because he's a corsair. He doesn't know how to idiot. defend a fortress. Yeah, 
Uh, he mutters how it's time to teach Clog the difference between the two of them. Clog's only an idiot corsair, and he, Badrang, is the master of this coast. So we're getting more of like how Badrang feels himself superior to Clog, whereas I have no doubts that if they both got on the ocean, Clog would trounce Badrang. Mm-hmm. Because Badrang's been on land for too long. Mm-hmm. Like, he still remembers the basics, but none of his men are seafarers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just a matter of who has the high ground. <laughs> Anakin, I have the high ground! <laughs> oh, come on, man. I'm in the ro- I was watching the wrong Star Wars media. My brain's not ready to switch back to the movies, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, you were talking about Star Wars, and now there's Star Wars You in were, my but brain. It was the different, it's-, it's a different Star Wars. Than- <laughs> it's the same Star Wars. They're all the same Star Wars. <laughs> They're different War. flavors, okay? It's they're all the flavors. same Star Wars. Yes, it's they're all the same, same Star Wars, but they got different flavors. The Mandalorian is a Western. The Star Wars prequel <laughs> is a is a is a tragedy. The original it's Star Hamlet. Wars trilogy is a schlocky B sci-fi movie. <laughs> the prequels are a hot mess. They are the prequels are great, and you shut your mouth. Oh, I'm sorry, not the prequels. I'm sorry, the sequel. No, I love the prequels. The sequel series is a hot mess. And okay, I will I will still go to bat for uh oh Force Awakens and Last Jedi, but Rise of Skywalker can go straight in the dumpster fire where it belongs. I'm still iffy on um uh the Last Skywalker, but um the first one good. Yeah. I saw that one in theaters. I still don't understand Raylo shippers. <laughs> I don't either. I don't understand. I don't like it. Anyway, uh, back on the mountainside, the squirrels are catching up to the group dismayingly fast. Guess what? We're back with the bullshit. (laughs) Back on their bullshit. Like, honestly, the other half of this this plot that's going on at Marshank is way more interesting to me than than this next bit of this book with Martin and Co. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, the pacing past this bit that I'm about to read gets so weird to me that I can't... It it stops being as interesting. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know? Yeah. And we're gonna get into that. I have multiple notes about how I'm not fond of the pacing. It is a choice. The other side of the book at this point is so much more interesting. So, yeah. The squirrels are catching up to the group dismayingly fast. Of course, they're still being... The weird tribal trope that they are. It's, uh, it's Martin, very unsettling. It, it the Martin is very good at making them unsettling. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it's not even like the way that he makes them unsettling kind of feels. You know what it feels like? It feels like the reverse from Firefly. Oh, I I have never watched Firefly. That- Oh my god. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. Part of me is like, you need to watch Firefly, but the rest of me is like, you really don't. You don't. Okay? It's it's okay. I, I and know. And that's I know that's blasphemy to so many people, but it is just okay. I, you I, want to watch anything to do with that? Watch Serenity and watch nothing else. I know. Curse your son, but inevitable betrayal, and I am a leaf on the wind. Is that enough? Yes. Watch? <laughs> Good. 
perfect. You've got it. Best character in the whole series. You found him. It's Wash. He's great. No notes. You did it. You succeed. I approve. I love you. <laughs> you can thank Faye for that, okay? Sudden but inevitable betrayal. He's playing with dinosaurs. <laughs> love that man. That man is like half name of my gender. Your grave. <gasps> No! Cursed your sudden but inevitable betrayal! <laughs> I am a leaf on the wind. Watch how I soar. Which, out of context, sounds cool. In context, it's the saddest thing that happens in the whole series! Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody who's never seen Serenity, I'm not telling you what it is. You have to find out on your own. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it, the Reavers and Firefly are people who have seen, supposedly they've seen the edge of space and looked into the void and the void looked back. The reality is that um, there were like human experiments to create an anti-aggression thing that caused aggression. It caused people to basically lose their minds. Okay. It's like you, um, you, it made the Reavers. You, you try so hard to remove something that it rebounds back and becomes worse. Yes. And the Reavers are exceptionally unsettling. Okay. Because they've lost that, like, that boundary, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's similar, in a similar way to these squirrels who don't have that boundary. All right. So it's unsettling. Well, I actually just, like, so I got the Libby audio app, you know, like, uh, not Libby is good. Libby's very good. And I listened to the first Wings of Fire book. Because I, oh boy, I actually own like the first five graphic novels, and I thought I'm going to listen to the book because I'm curious. And it's like, yeah, I can definitely see why Wings of Fire took off. Like, if I was a kid when this came out, I absolutely would have gone bonkers over it too. There's a character in there who she has a condition where she has too much fire inside her, mm-hmm. and anyone who touches her burns. Anything that touches her burns. Oh, poor sweetheart. And she is raised by the sadistic queen of the Sky Dancers. Or not Sky Dancers, the Sky Wings. Oh! Yeah. See, I don't know anything about Wings of Fire except for one of Osmosisized from an artist acquaintance I know I like have who like loves Wings of Fire. I understand yes. so much. Like you just explaining that means that I now understand so much of yes. the shit that they draw. Yes. So <laughs> She was raised and taught that, she was told that she burned her twin alive in the egg, and that's why she has too much fire, because she ate his fire, and that her mother died trying to kill her. And the queen raised her, she's like, well, since you're a natural-born killer, I'm going to raise you to fight in my gladiator ring. So you have this dragon who has never had physical contact in her life that has not caused others pain, so she's touch deprived to the extreme she is socially deprived because everyone is terrified of her because hey if she touches you you die um, or at least get severe burns and pain and not only that but she's the queen's favorite and she kills people for the queen so when she interacts with clay the narrator of the first book you know she's like hey like i'm just having fun talking to you and i just thought it would be good to nice to know you before i kill you and clay's like what she's like yeah I mean, I kill most everyone I meet, but, you know, it's nice to talk to people every now and then. It's nice to get to know you. And I want to have it be a fair fight when we fight so that when I kill you, it won't be boring. You know, she has no concept of, like, what a normal relationship is. In fact, like, she she tries to help them escape, gets jealous, 
tries to get them captured again because she doesn't want to lose them. And one of Clay's companions is like, hey, yeah, like she likes you. She like likes you. Um, but you can't let her get away with this or it's going to become a very bad relationship. Like they point out that just because she's in a bad situation doesn't mean she's allowed to do bad stuff herself. But she ha- she lacks that mental connection. There's that barrier isn't there. Yeah. Like if you kill someone, that, that just that happens, you know. This is why being raised by a community is important. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's unsettling in that way. A good community. You know, it's, that, it's just, Yeah. Yeah. No, you got to be raised by a good community. Holy shit. Um, or, you know, in Megamind, be raised by a bunch of convicts. <laughs> fuck cops. Megamind said, fuck cops. A <laughs> cap. <laughs> I'm sorry, that gif of Megamind being shown the, like, picture of the cop and the convicts all shaking their heads. Yeah. And Megamind as a baby just shaking his head. Uh-huh. Like, I saw that and I was like, Megamind said A-cap. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is underappreciated. It is so fucking good. <laughs> Presentation! You make that joke later, I actually. do. It's very good. Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, Martin tries to make a valiant rearguard stand. He's like, you all go on ahead. I'll hold them off. I have a sword. I'll at least slow them down. And Rose just plonks herself the fuck down and is like, I am not moving until you come with us. And he's like, that's not how this works. Fine. God, I don't have time to argue with you. Fine. God, go. I have read two. That was such a well-written bit. Yeah. Like I've read two really good debunks of a trope. Like Rose absolutely saying, absolutely the heck not and then surprisingly of all things um i found a scan of the tokyo mew mew special they put out last year i think it was uh-huh, where uh-huh, it's just uh-huh. like a, a little mini short story of like ichigo and you know her boyfriend meeting up again and dealing with like some of the last chimeras on earth um and her boyfriend is like fretting because he's like yeah like i still have a remnant of the power of the creature who wanted to kill the humans and take over earth he's like am i safe to be around her you know, like, if I still have some of Deep Blue in me, am I safe? And this other guy's like, wow, that's fucking boring. That's what you're worried about? Like, are you really going to ditch her? Do you think that's what's going to make her happy? You, you Like, you're not protecting her. You're just going to make her miserable. And he's like, oh, shit, you're right. You know, like... The, like that is so good. Yeah. Tokyo Mew Mew, even, like, in its first iteration, was so good. And they just made it better by doing it again. They just call out so many bad tropes, and I love it. It's so good. I haven't actually had the chance, like, I've seen bits and pieces. I haven't had the chance to sit and actually, like, ingest the new Tokyo Mew Mew. But, like, I remember reading the original Tokyo Mew Mew and fucking adoring I it. still have my original copies. They are they are very so I want to, lovingly preserved. Can you, can you send me where you were reading Tokyo Mew Mew? Yes, I'll send it to you right now while I'm thinking about it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you and love you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. Rose just like is just see me. She sits on the ledge that's directly above Martin. Basically, just crosses her arm is like, I'm not moving until you come with us. And Martin does not have the time to tell her just go. He just kind of looks at her, looks at the squirrels, looks at her, looks at the squirrels, sheathes his sword. Is like, fine, God, get up and go. <laughs> um. Uh, 
So they continue carrying on the desperate climb towards the cave and its theoretical shelter. They continue up, Rose and Martin helping the less nimble Grum and Palum. Grum is having a bad time because uh, he is afraid of heights and he literally is like, I can't look up or down without getting dizzy and feeling sick. Oh, I hate this. He's a mole. He's not and built Palum for is climbing. Just, he's not. And Palum is just struggling on the incline because his... He, he he can't get a good grip on it. Mm-hmm. Um, like they have to like push Palum's paws up to help him get up things because he's big. He's the biggest out of all of them. Yeah, he, him, so he's him just struggling. Him hedgehog. One squirrel manages to grab Martin's paw and he lashes out viciously by like kicking, and he manages to send the squirrel flying into the dark night air. The other squirrels only laugh and mock their last comrade. This is where we're like, it's... oh, that barrier's not there. Yeah, hang on, let's see. Uh, da, da, da. It's really... Okay, here it is. Let's see. Let's see. Hee hee, good game. We'll catch you, you mousie. His paws aching from the strain, Martin pulled himself onward and upward, grunting with exertion as he shoved Palom ahead. Suddenly, Martin felt his foot paw being grabbed. One squirrel, faster than the rest, had sprinted up and caught him. <laughs> gotcha! With a furious energy, he kicked back with his free foot paw. <laughs> with a drawn-out howl of despair, the squirrel hurtled out into empty space and was lost in the night. Shaking himself, Martin clambered on with the shouts of the god tribe ringing in his ears. <laughs> Silly beast fell! Oh, they're so creepy. How do they end up this way? It's like, that's what I wanted. We get a little bit and it's apparently that they have very short memories, which is weird. Considering, uh, yes, we have gotten the cannibal squirrels from another area. They were like also really weird. It, It. he, I think, I think some of this might be a commentary from Brian on isolation. Oh, that's true. But they're not isolated. That's the thing. But they kind of are. From what we can see in their forest and on this mountain, there aren't really any other sapient creatures that want to interact with them. Like the birds avoid them. They're cowed by Baldred. Uh, uh, they don't go into the, the 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 swamp where the warden is. The warden has no jurisdiction over them. Anything that knows that they're there probably doesn't come into that area. True. And so there is probably some aspect of isolation that is not helping their situation. Yeah. It just very much uh, feels like they don't have a solid leadership or anything to really build a society off of. To it's be like, where fair. Food. They make to clothes. be fair, at this point, they don't have any leadership. Yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> Martin kind of beat up their leader. Yeah, Martin killed him. <laughs> I killed him. He is dead. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> so you're not wrong there. It's just, it, the, the whole god tribe feels very, very peculiar. It's the way that Martin writes, not Martin, Jesus. The way that Brian yes, writes. Yes, Martin is Jesus. <laughs> Never mind. The way that that Brian writes these sort of like tribal instant hit my microphone. The way that Brian writes these like tribal instances of like species we see regularly feels bad and weird. It does. 
it feels like he it's just a lack of understanding yeah brian writes instances of like tribes of people badly this is just a, this is an unfortunate truth of the series mm-hmm. that we will point out every fucking time mm-hmm. it will get tiring it is already tiring but consider how tired but we, we are having to read it yeah so they are our intrepid heroes just managed to make it to the cave martin makes use of the narrower cave entrance to prepare a defense only two of the god tribe can come at him at a time and that he can handle inside the cave though as martin is like come at me you motherfuckers rose is confronted by two great luminous eyes and they're revealed to be a short-eared owl bird uh, who originally, like, spooks the hell out of Rose by, like, saying words like, who are you, what are you doing here? And Rose, like, uh, explains, like, she's terrified. She's like, blah, 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 blah. we're trying to escape the, the god tribe. And so she soothes Rose uh, while telling her and the others to move further in. They're not to mind when she puts on her uh, great voice. And Martin is not at all aware of what's going on inside the cave until he's brushed aside by a massive brown soft wing. The owl steps up, filling the opening of the cave. Uh, also, bird. Bird. We called it. Bird. Bird. Baldred's another bird. 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 bird, bird. Yep. Uh, the squirrels drop down and grovel, shrieking Sky Queen. And she is revealed to be Baldred. We fucking called it that Baldred was a bird. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we specifically said she'd be an owl, but we definitely were like, she's definitely a bird. And she's a bird. Bird. She scolds the squirrels in a great voice, condemning them for their treatment of the travelers and asking if they'd thought she'd not return. When asked where their chieftain was, none reply. And she flips one trembling squirrel over and like pins him with her foot, who stutters out that the mouse had defeated him. She covers up her ignorance with a cough. Of course she'd known that. Now, what was their excuse for harassing the travelers? Like, she basically claims that she had been flying and watching this the whole time. Uh, which is very funny, mm-hmm. honestly. Uh, uh, she, uh, so when the squirrel says that they were only playing a game, she grabs six of them by their tails and lifts off into the sky, asking them if they'd like to play her game. Uh, Rose is, of course, horrified at the thought of them being killed. Um... Martin soothes her because uh, he has caught on to what the owl is doing and approves. Uh, if you want to read your little comment about Rose. Yeah, and it's like for all that Rose is feisty, he keeps reminding us, like Brian keeps reminding us that she has this core of compassion that makes her character. You know? Yeah. She is not a warrior. She's willing to fight if she has to. But yes. if she doesn't want to... She she's very quick to be like horrified when in, if she sees what she considers to be excessive violence. Yeah, from a civilized uh, creature anyway, of a more civilized <laughs> age. She's from a very peaceful society. Yeah, as we see later, a peaceful isolationist, uh, isolationalist society, which isolationalists who are open to people joining them though they're not like exclusionists. Yeah. Uh, but so anyway, uh. And indeed, all that Boulder does is she drops the six squirrels she'd picked up by their tails, I'm pretty sure, yeah. on top of their tribe. Her punishment is a day spent on the ledge below her cave. No food, no water, 
no talking. The tribe scrambles down to obey her, thoroughly frightened. Now sit down! And shut up! <laughs> uh, she leads the traveler- Like, they sit down, no talking, they're just trembling. Uh, it is a little funny. They, they know they done goofed. Uh, yeah, they know they done goofed. And, like, she doesn't hurt them. And I really like that even, like, we had Martin, like, he killed their leader. Uh, they had been, like, trying to fight the Ga tribe. And Boldred, because she is well aware that she could very easily kill all of these squirrels. Mm-hmm. She's a huge owl. She could pick up six, three in each foot, and fly. She bigs. And what? And instead of doing that, she's just making sure that they understand, like, you can't bully people like this. But she's also just like, they have very short memories. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure her husband is like, yeah, they'll be gone, like, by morning. Yeah. Um, but so she leads the travelers into the cave and into a cleverly hidden side passage. There we meet her mate, Horty, full name Hortwingle, which he detests, <laughs> and a fluffy little chicklet named Emilette. Uh, Which, honestly, Emilette got, like, just named and I was like, She's adorable. No. I know nothing of her, but I love her. Big, big Guardians of Gahul vibe with this entire family. Very much so. They're, Very much they're so. They're scribes. They're so they Guardians of Gahul. They are. The the, the four, it, It's entirely possible that some of Guardians of Gahul maybe could have been inspired by this. Who knows? We don't know if the authors read the Redwall series. <laughs> hey, maybe, the, maybe uh, we the could four, ask the Gahooligans. Yeah, we could ask the Gahooligans. <laughs> I need to start listening to that. Um... The four introduce themselves to the owls. Boldred can see the warrior spirit in Martin, saying that he had done the right thing to defeat the chieftain. Otherwise, they'd have been killed in the name of another game on the spot, which is what almost happened. Mm-hmm. Like, she's 100% correct. That almost happened. That is why Martin, like, challenged the leader. He was like, let's do a different kind of game. Mm-hmm. Uh, she hopes that her punishment will make an impression this time, but her mate speaks up skeptically about it. By noon tomorrow, they have forgotten and wandered back down for another game, no doubt. Wait, and so we learn that the pair are map makers and historians. They split the duties of childcare and knowledge and food hunting between the two of them. And being short-eared owls, they'd usually be asleep at night, but the ruckus outside had woken them up. Now, Kit pointed out, this is not correct. Short-eared owls do hunt at night or are diurnal. Yeah. Um, Kit specifically said between the times of morning and sunset. Uh, like, and I was like, is that called diurnal? I can't remember. And Kit, yeah. Yes, I, it is. I know words. <laughs> um, you did. You knew the so, right word. So it's entirely possible that these two... And Emilette are diurnal. It's probably because they're map makers, but while they're making maps, they like to interact with the local creatures. And it's a lot easier to interact with the locals when you're not flying around when they're trying to sleep. Yeah, but because they say specifically, we're short-eared owls, we're usually asleep at night. Like, that is literally what they say. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Yeah. Um, Rose is very grateful that the ruckus woke them up, uh, and Boldrin recognizes her as a child of Uran Vo and Arya. She does mention her mother. Yeah. Um, but she admits that Rose wouldn't recognize her. The last time she'd been in Newtonvale, Rose had just been a happy, excuse me, a happy little singing baby. 
Crum, though, remembers her being two seasons older than Rose. He doesn't remember her well, but he does remember that she was in Noonvale a lot. And that is because at the time, she had been mapping out that area. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Boldred is excited to hear that they're headed back to Noonvale. She asks Horty if he'd be willing to watch Emilette for her so she could go visit Noonvale again. Like, she fucking loves Noonvale. She wants to visit again. She's like, I can lead you guys there. This is a perfect excuse. Horty, can you watch the baby? And Horty's like, absolutely. I am more than willing to do this because he admits that he is a home bird at heart and his little daughter is just looking up at him with silent loving adoration this little bird has not made a peep this whole time she is like adorable and just very much just little fluff ball she's a papa's girl we, we get this do you want to read your your little note about yes I, I, I put a note where I go, a good dad and his loving daughter. Yee. Brian's showing us the whole slew of families in this book. Dang. And I like that the birds of prey have been shown as good parents. Even the gannet. Because that's the thing. Most birds are fantastic parents. We don't talk about the cowbird. <laughs> They're mafia members. <laughs> Uh, they bully the other birds into taking care of their children and they don't take care of their own children themselves. They, they're terrible. They are. They're, they're, you know, like the mockingbird, which steals other birds' nest or kills their babies and steals their nest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so because of just the atmosphere that's in this like cave, this home, it's so warm and homey and like safe feeling that all four of them sleep uh, safely and peacefully the rest of the night. They even, basically, they sleep in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin wakes slowly, watching Rose feed bits of Grum's, like, inventive honey cakes to a very polite Emilette. Emilette just kind of, like, is waiting and then, when, like, waits for the cake to be, like, in her beak and let go of before she, like, horfs it. Basically. She's so polite! <laughs> Because her parents have spent the time with her to, like, make sure, like, no, you have to eat this. Like, mm-hmm. you got to uh, be nice. <laughs> Training a dog to take food properly. Well, I mean, when you're talking about raising a young predator. Yeah, be nice. <laughs> which Brian would admit, won't admit that they are predators, except for once. Um... Let me talk about hunting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Horty bustles in to wake them up properly. Uh, he's like, it's like four hours after dawn. Come on, let's go. Uh, and gossips very happily with Boldred as they prepare for the day, saying that the squirrels are still down there, silent and like still a stone, basically. They're still there. Um, By some miracle. They're joking about how, yeah, they're joking about how the warden would have snapped up the squirrels. Uh, saying, I am the law, yeah. <laughs> things like that. And how Polykeen would have fed them so much that they'd have been rendered immobile. And Martin is, dis- is surprised to hear that they know her. And they admit to knowing many of the creatures that the four had said that they'd met along the way. They simply hadn't wanted to interrupt their story the night before. Uh, when asked if they knew Badrang, they admit that they don't and firmly do not want to know such an evil blight. Um... Boldred moves the talk along, though, declaring that it is time to go. She leads them through the cool, dim tunnel out to a very, like, a much gentler side of the mountain. Like, the the cave system, it basically goes, like, straight through, but it's not a straight shot. 
It is full of winding side tunnels and dead ends and like she knows the way through and they all would have gotten fucking lost. It's, it makes me, I need to double, I wonder if they had uh, ground slots this... in prehistoric England. What? Okay, so there's this phenomenon called ground sloth tunnels or ground sloth caves where giant ground sloths would literally carve out these huge warrens of caves that later hominids came in and took over. And just like that's fucking wild. Yeah, and when they talk about like this near straight shot tunnel though, with like a few of the winding paths on the offshoot, it just makes you think of those tunnels that were dug out by giant ground sloths. That's that could potentially be what it's based on because like England, like the UK is full of cave systems. Some of them are limestone and are prone to collapse, but mm-hmm. others are in like solid rock. Yeah. So it's like super interesting. Um, but so they come out onto this gentler side of the mountain where there's like green grass and like trees and like there's so much like it's so nice and Grum sniffs the air happily declaring that it smells like home. Palum takes a sniff too. He's never had a home. What's it smell like? Crying cat meme dot JPEG. <laughs> this, this one got me okay. No, same. It got me too. I made a noise. I was like, ah. What's a home smell Uh, like? Rose Rose says that he will know when they reach Noonvale. That will be his home. Boldred comes and goes. She's like flying over them, telling the group that she'd asked some birds to alert the otters that they were coming. The otters would take them part of the way on the broad stream on their boat. And Grum asks, why only part of the way? Do they have to swim? He can't swim. He's like, she comforts him. He's like, I had to climb. Are you going to make me swim now? Oh god, I'm supposed to have two feet planted firmly on the ground. Or under it. <laughs> um, she comforts him. The otters will pass them off to the shrews, whose boats were less comfortable but much faster. Basically, she's just like, no, no, no. We're not swimming. We're going on boats. And when we get to the end of like where the otters can take us, there are shrews who will take us down there. Their boats are less comfortable but much faster. Um, and I read otters and then shrews and was like, ah, my two favorite things. I'm going to be disappointed. Very. Um, with their way pl- ahead planned, the group frolics in the nice warm day, and Boldred watches them, wishing them to enjoy this moment of peace. Polly Keen had warned her of the trials ahead of the four young uh, people. Like, basically, literally, after they had left Polly Keen, Boldred had gone to visit her, and Polly Keen had told her about them and what she had seen. And so, she, like, Boldred knows, and I'm just over here vibrating with future knowledge, because normally this prophecy shit, as you all know, bugs me. It's some bullshit Arthurian prophecy shit, but because we know what's going on and we know what is ahead specifically for Martin, it's just like, oh. It's it's a way of Brian looping the looping us readers into the story. We have that foreknowledge as well. We know what's going to happen to Martin, at least. And the fact that these three creatures he's starting to consider friends aren't in his later stories, you know mm-hmm. something is going to happen. Yeah. It is. <laughs> He'll never have his happy safe home in Noonvale. And nope. when he builds Redwall, he becomes an object of veneration. He can never be a father. He can never be a true brother, except maybe to, you know, his boy. Um, and just he is a being of 
you know, worship. He's of Arthurian proportions. He no longer gets to be a person. He is the warrior. And that is all he will be in the future. Imagine if this was the first book you ever read in this series. Imagine. Listeners, if any of you, if this was your first book, please tell us. I want to know what you thought going into later, like, other books. I need to know. Because this was not my first book. So I already knew. I need to know what you thought. That you don't remember. When you started reading the other books. I don't remember what was the first Redwall book I read. That's fair. Uh, In Marshank, Clog wakes up in a fine mood. He drinks deeply, eats heartily, and then sets about rebraiding his beard. When he hears a knock on his door, he asks if it's Crosstooth, and has he seen Badrang? Badrang kicks the door open, demanding Clog get his butt out of his chair. Presentation! He does, like, the little knock, waits for Clog to answer, starts to open the door, and then just kicks it open and it's so fucking good the build up to to clog realizing that it's badring yeah. uh he falls backwards in shock with badring marching up to place a paw on his belly he's got control of the situation now and demands clog ask how he got back in stutteringly clog does the slave escape tunnel you could use it both ways clog wiggles free and runs holler- hollering for his crew badring says he can call all he wants he won't get help. Clog fears for his men, but Bad Badrang explains that he just tied the drunk idiots up and clubbed the sentries. Clog tries to change the mood. He hadn't stolen the fortress? No, he was only watching it for Badrang. By the way, had he caught the slaves? Badrang says there was no need. He could come see for himself why. And... Clog's crew is tied up tight, and Badrang gives them three choices. They can be slaves, they can die, or they can become his soldiers and leave Clog's employ. It is a very easy choice for them. One by one, they declare their desertion of Clog. And when he laments this to, like, his, like, he's, he's, his, like, heads are around him, and he's like, was I a bad captain? They were like, no, 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 you were a fine captain. You just made one too many mistakes, and when it came down to it, a creature had to watch out for their own skins. No hard feelings. None of them are mad yeah. at them. They're just like, we just don't want to die. Yeah, like, my man. Or become slaves. They're like, yeah, it's like slavery, death, or working for bad ring. Like, there's there's not really any choice here, my dude. Yeah, we're just, sorry, man. Like, at least they were nice yeah, about it. Yeah, like, they're just, it's like, hey, <laughs> hey, boss, like, we don't hate you, boss, but... But we don't want to die, so he's our boss now. So- sorry, dude. You know, it, it, I, I, I like this. Like, I just, everything about yeah. Clog and his crew is like, I enjoy the way Brian writes these kinds of vermin. Where it's, it's not like, there isn't so much vicious backstabbery as we're just trying to survive. Which makes way more yeah. sense. Yeah, it's it's good. Um. Clog thinks, of course, that he's going to be put into the prison pit, but he is told that he is to fill it instead. And he's mocked that uh, now he has the chance to become an honest, hard-working slave. Just like, this is gonna swing around and bite you in the ass, bad ring. It really is. He's just gonna be stewing in anger and resentment. And it does! And it's like, I- I'm glad he doesn't, because the writing we get for Clog later on is so good. 
but it's so fucking funny. It's just like every time Brian writes uh, villains as being like cold and merciless, but then they do something like this where they they preserve someone who in all reality they shouldn't. It's just like, okay, Brian, I can see like you're giving the villain some rusty plot armor again, but come on, Brian. You're, you're, you're giving us some double standards here, Brian. <laughs> yeah, it's inconsistent, but yeah. it, it happens. It, it's not terrible, yeah. but it's just like it, it just every now and then when you're used to like looking for certain plot points, it's just kind of like, eh, all right, this is going to come around to bite. Like this is Brian setting up the karmic ending retribution. Mm-hmm. So Feldo, we're back with the 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 players and escaped slaves. Feldo is busy training his new fighting force, the Fur and Freedom Fighters. They have a flag and everything, hastily made by Roanoke from scraps of costumes. And Bala marches over to, to, to Roanoke, asking for lunch, and she sends him off to the cooks. He sings while he does so in a gaudy costume meant to ape a military uniform. Which, there is a drawing of him at the very beginning of the chapter that is just so fucking funny to look at. Like, just the, the, the side, sideways facing body, kind or like the kind of like, position of the body and then like him looking directly at the reader it's extremely funny it's it's good i like it um but the little ditty he sings all the ladies smile at me look at there look at there he's a fine dashing figure of a hair of a hair he'd fight off a horde alone he's a warrior to the bone feed him plenty and you'll never have a care have a care <laughs> god uh, Feldo teaches the use of javelin and launcher, and Kayla shows them how to use even a simple rock as a weapon. Blunt force, thrown, or used even greater effectiveness in a sling. Because one of them comes forward and is like, well, how do I use this? And he's like, oh, this is real good. And he just cracks it. It's so satisfying. I, I love this. Like, Brian showing how basic guerrilla warfare works. You know, mm -hmm. you use what you got, and even a rock works. Yeah, uh, Kayla plans to ask Bark John if he could craft more slings for them, and Buckler is drilling a group in how to use makeshift pikes. They're using the tent poles and the sharp stake ends as the end of the pike. And Celandine, who has got her paws in, like, water, cooling her feet off, says that they're silly things, and uh, Gaoshi chases her off to go help with the cooking. If she's not going to learn to train, she's going to go help cook. Which, fair. Yeah. And, like, this isn't even, like, a, a get-back-in-the-kitchen woman. This is, like, go help everyone else. Like, just go do like something useful. You have to be, if you're not going to train, you need to go do something else that's helpful, and that's being, it's cooking. Yeah. Go do that, for the love of God. Uh, which is fair. Everybody should be doing mm -hmm. something. She shouldn't just be sitting around. Yeah. Uh, Bala, meanwhile, is chased off by the cook's helper, Little Fuffle. And he's not the cook's helper. No, they refer to him as, like, he's in charge. Yeah. And he's like, Professor, chop off in your tails. It's so funny. And Fuffle is having uh, none of it. Fuffle's like, you get out of here. He's having none of Bala's harishness whatsoever. He's just like, absolutely the fuck not. Get out of here. I love it. I love Fluffle. Because <laughs> he's he's spreading honey on, on scones. Like, he's doing such a good job. And I'm just like, I love this little guy. Oh, he's so sweet. He is. Um, over a simple lunch, a debate springs up over the wiseness of attacking Marshank. Feldo is for it, explaining his plan is to do lightning attacks. In and out, no pitched battles. This is guerrilla warfare 101. 
Uh, Bark John is against it, reminding his son that they are few in number and low in experience. None of them, none of these slaves are fighters. Bala is for it, though, as well, pointing out how Brome had managed uh, his trick. Um, when he asks what Brome thinks, though, Brome deflects. He's a good bluffer, not a fighter, and he doesn't want to see anyone die, including their friends. Like, he doesn't want to see anybody die yeah. at this point. Uh, Feldo encourages him, saying that he can become a healer brave enough to dash into battle to help beasts. And old uh, Gem makes one more good point. Why not just pack up and leave? Why not leave Marshank to stew in its own misery? Go someplace far away and forget all of this. The mousemaid Purslane leaps up, saying Marshank would take more slaves if left alone. She has a little one, and she'll fight so he never has to face that. With a few other creatures agreeing, Feldo says he will make the first attack that night. Barkjohn doesn't stop him, only wishing him luck. Roanoke wishes him luck with a break a leg, and the others have to explain to Feldo what that means. Yes. <laughs> Fuffle helpfully wishes that he breaks both of his legs, and the, audi- uh, the adults applaud his logic. And everyone clapped. Yep. Martin, meanwhile, is enjoying his journey with Boldred greatly. She's an excellent and friendly guide. The group reaches a cherry orchard, the fruit ripe and begging to be picked. They do so, and Boldred flies off to update her maps and see who else is about. And this is where I start having some problems with the pacing, because they are dawdling. It's, again, Brian sandbagging the plot. It's Brian sandbagging the plot. There's there's no urgency felt in this side of the story. There's no, like, we need to get to Noonvale. Like, because, like, before they were like, we need to get to Noonvale. We need to get people rallied and we need to go help the people in Marshank. We need to be doing this. But as soon as they're through the mountain, they're dawdling. I, I did also point out as well, though, you have to consider that these four are... Like, they're not adults yet. They are not children, but they are not adults. They have been three or four days in a row of traumatic experiences, like deeply traumatic experiences. They nearly got cooked alive, you know. So I feel like part of this dawdling is, one, it's them, even if they aren't conscious of it, it's them recovering from that trauma a little. They're finally in some place safe and quiet. And you can't... You, you can't worry as much about others when you yourself are caught in anxiety and trauma. You have to give yourself a chance to recover before you can remember, right, there's someone else out there who needs my help. You, you have to get your own feet back under you before you can go running off to help somebody. To quote a Christian, pro- to quote a Christian proverb, get the log out of your eye before you go and help someone get a grain out of theirs. To, to paraphrase rabbinical teachings, it's, um, you cannot help others if you do not first help yourself. Exactly. Um, like, you're right, but I still don't feel good about it, because it, the pacing in this bit is just weird. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, I agree. There does need to be that little bit of a slowdown, that bit of a rest, that kind of levity after such, like, heavy bits especially like with Marshank is starting to get heavier again but the pacing is weird it is a choice it's a choice and I'm not fond of it so 
they settle in for a good gorge and a very ancient hedgehog comes tumbling out of the woods, shaking a walking staff and scolding them for getting into his cherries. Get off my lawn! Yeah. <laughs> but also... We have the, the, art, the chapter art is of this, like, old hedgehog with, like, this, like, stick. He's got, like, a mohawk! He's little... He's got, like, a hedgehog mohawk. He's got, like, these little square, like, dark glasses perched on the end of his nose. He is he is a punk grandpa, and I accept no other headcanon. Uh, and it's described as him having a cut blackthorn stick. And that means that it is not just any good old walking stick. It is a shillelagh. Uh, used for giving people a good old thwack. Which, also, I must point out, while I was reading Redwall yesterday... In my hour of crisis, Kit was looking up shillelaghs on Wikipedia. And I know this because she sent me a snap. Listen, you're screaming about Animorphs. I'm just trying to figure out. I just wanted to see what a shillelagh was. I wanted to take a look at it. So I knew. Okay. And then you sent me another another Snapchat with a very smug, knowing face. Listen, I have had almost 20 years to get over the ending of Animorphs, Okay. I'm going to enjoy your suffering while it lasts. Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> anyway, shillelaghs are cool. Blackthorn is a very sturdy, like, wood to use. And the way they cure oh. it is fascinating. There's, like, three different it methods. Is. Yeah, shillelagh's good. If you, if you get something and it's called a shillelagh and it's not, like, blackthorn, uh, it's probably not an actual shillelagh. It's a shafaki. Uh, my dad had a... Yeah, but... <laughs> My dad had a blackthorn shillelagh, and that thing was fucking sturdy. My brother has it now. You could kill somebody with that thing. I mean, that's that thing kind is a of weapon. the point. Oh, yeah. No, that's the point. Those things are fucking weapons. They're cudgels. Uh, so, uh, this old hedgehog's angry swipes of his, of his cane, of his shillelagh, his walking stick, they are slow, extremely easy to dodge, so easy that Rose is able to hold it still while returning the old hedgehog's spectacles to his nose, which he hates, and he's just pulling on the stick, like, give me back my stick, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, he is absolutely no threat, but his sharp insults are starting to irritate Martin. So Martin threatens, and the old fellow squares Like, you up. gotta give him credit for sheer spunk alone. Oh, yeah. Uh, before they get into it, Baldred swoops in and snatches his stick away, scolding him, and we learn that his name is Agril. Uh, she also scolds that the orchard isn't his, it's for everyone, and he mutters a mutinous little lie that Martin had started it. Grum pops up uh, to scold him for it, and Agro's mood swings immediately. He likes molies. They're good and wise creatures. Would they like some cherry cordial if they're friends of this mole? Boldred encourages them to do so. He's harmless, just old and eccentric, and she's busy mapping a stream bed, so she'll be back later. Grum follows Agril, saying he does indeed want cordial. We have more dawdling. In mm -hmm. Agril's home, he happily... The sequence is very odd. It is. He's showing off his art and the art of his family, the art of making cordials of all sorts, to be eaten with cheeses, salads, and other delicacies. Like, his home is in a hollow old oak tree, and there are just casks and, like, cas like casks and, and barrels just everywhere, and gourds and stuff, and he's, like, pulling things down, like, won't you try this and this? And Martin and Rose eat happily, comfortable in, th in this place uh, the old hedgehog lives in. With a soft buzzing voice and bellies full of cordial, they drift off to sleep in the soft afternoon. 
Like it's described, like his house does sound very pleasant, it does. but you know, a little trigger warning for this next bit here. He does drug them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he drugs them. He drugs them. It's <laughs> very funny. But he's also like, he shows off like carved cherry wood, like bowls and things. And I'm like, cherry wood is absolutely wonderful. Like as a carved wood is so pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So Rose awakens under the stars, extremely confused. Uh, everything felt like it was floating. And in fact, it was floating on water. She was on a boat. Before that she could start an alarm, though, a kindly male otter just kind of pops into her view and explains that she's on the water lily, floating down the broad stream. Agril had apparently slipped them some kind of sleeping draught in among the cordials. He deeply dislikes young creatures and would do his best to get rid of him. They were just simply lucky they had the protection of Boldred. Or the potion may have been more than just for sleep. It could have been like- permanently asleep. Yeah, like, he would straight up have just poisoned these kids to death. I cannot believe this old man drugged them. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, I I make a note that, like, these kids, like, like, I feel like part of this is Martin's journey of, like, experiencing, like, good, bad, and neutral creatures. Because in this book, he's already encountered creatures that in later books or even in earlier books would have straight up just been evil or straight up just been good. But no, it's like here he's meeting creatures who are you know, ostensibly of the good types, but are still evil, which is like, there's a lot of subversions in this book that I wish Brian would carry over more if he just thought about them a little harder. Like both times we've seen bad squirrels, they've been unfortunately the savage tribe stereotype. Yeah. But it's like the fact that it shows that Brian is willing to write bad versions of what he would usually lump as good creatures. He just needs to think about it a little more. Thinking? I don't know her. Uh, by morning, they have... Uh, no, wait, hold on. I skipped a bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Rose asks where Boldred is, and she hears her voice above. She is safe, resting on the masthead. She bids Rose to go back to sleep, and the mousemaid can't resist the order. By morning, they are all recovered and are enjoying dabbling their paws in the broad stream while the otters sing a river shanty. Let me get to this, because I okay. immediately clocked... What this shanty was, and it is, I know it too now that you mention it. It is too, it is in time with Leave Her Johnny, Leave Her. I reread it like eight or nine times to make can, sure my timing was right. Can I sing it? Yeah, go for it. Or do you want to do it? I, you can sing it. Oh, the broad string comes from who knows where. It, oh, it flows. <laughs> no, maybe to who you... knows whither? And I sail, and I sail with, with it here and there, wandering, wandering young and hither. The place <laughs> of waters is my. Oh, hold on. The place yeah, ahead, of waters is my home, for I'm a fearless rover. Through calm and storm, I'm bound to roam until my days are over. Roll, roll, and flow. Let the seasons go. And it's just, I picked up, it's only the last line that kind of fucks with it a little bit, that it took me a minute to realize that it was leave her, Johnny, leave her. But it is, it's leave her, Johnny, leave her. And I love, like, Leave Her Johnny Lever is one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. I fucking love so Leave much Her fun Johnny to sing Lever. Along too. Like, listen, I know you guys listening to this now don't might 
not remember, but in 2020, we had a glorious revival of sea shanties, and I'm so happy it happened because- Brought on by a song that's not even a sea shanty. No. Wellerman is not a sea shanty. (laughs) Wellerman? Yeah, Wellerman, it's not a sea shanty. It's- it's a wailing shanty or, you know. Well, it's not a working song is the thing. That's what sea, right. that's what uh, sea shanties are is their working song. They have a particular yeah. cadence that lends to doing that repetitive work. And Wellerman doesn't have that. It's, it's, it's a, a ballad. call and response. Yeah, it's a, um, a so, shanties are calls sorry. and responses. Wellerman's a yes. ballad. Yeah. So it's a song to sing around drinks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's like. Uh, leave her, Johnny. Leave her is definitely one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. You know what? I, the one thing I need to complain to Joseph about: we've been playing a safe campaign, which is, or, or not the the campaign is named Safe. It You've is been playing in a boats based. campaign, and you haven't done any sea shanties. We haven't done a single sea shanty. What the fuck, Joseph? Right, Joseph. Joe, Although, what to the be fuck? Fair, okay, to be fair to Joe, the oldest boat we have in the campaign is Titanic, like nineteen fourteen. But I know that there were definitely still sea shanties in the 1914s and so on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. wasn't until, um, I think, it's like the 40s or so that uh, shanties started kind of falling out as, like, mm-hmm. ships started getting bigger and bigger. Like, the Titanic yeah. was huge. Yeah. But, um, and it and it didn't, but there were still a lot of ships that needed the kind of work that, um, mm-hmm. that these call and response songs lend well to. Well, like, even, even like the Coleman, you'd think like the Coleman in the Titanic, I have to call, not call it T because we call her T in the game. <laughs> and she's very um, big and very pretty. She's, she's very big and very pretty. Um, but, uh, like you'd think like the Coleman, the guys work in the docks, they would still use the shanties. Oh, yeah, yeah. People still use the shanties. Um, there's updated yeah. shanties, too, but I don't know any of them by the, off the top of my head. Anyway, so, yeah, uh, Leave Her, Johnny, Leave Her. They're fucking great. I love that I immediately recognized that. Thank you, Brian, for making uh, one of these fucking recognizable to normal people. Um, <laughs> I say normal as if we're not both fucking weirdos for knowing sea shanties. Yeah, but, but he was a dock worker, he so was. I think he had, like, the biggest excuse to know sea shanties oh, yeah. out of anybody. Oh, yeah. I'm just a Meanwhile, Navy we're brat. over here, like, yeah, and I grew up in California, but I grew up in, like, central, not coastal. So the only reason I know sea shanties is because I also grew up, like, dad really likes Celtic music, and a lot of the Pandora Celtic stations lump sea shanties in yeah. with Celtic music. Well, there's also a lot of, like, older, like, quote-unquote Celtic and, like, Nordic songs that are those calls and responses, like, uh, mm-hmm. Dulahan. Mm-hmm. Or not Dulahan, Dulaman. Uh, um, there. Oh, what was that recent one? Um, uh, Parting Glass. Yes, Parting Glass, yeah. which is a a uh, a bar song. Yeah, uh, last call kind of song. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not last call. It's about somebody who is leaving Ireland. Uh, because the way ah. that it was treated is that when you left to go overseas, you were they treated it as though it were awake. Okay. You were still alive, but they didn't expect you to come back. You would write. Yeah, because back would then call. you didn't. Yeah, you didn't. Yeah. And so it was treated like a wake and it was a, a going away party with a bit of a somber affair to it. So parting glass is that last glass that you would raise when before you leave. Right? Yep. It is yep. the parting glass. Um, there's also whiskey in a jar. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yes. 
I, I fucking love bar songs, man. Bar songs typically are derivative from call and response, like shanty songs. They're real good. Anyway, whiskey, we're whiskey, music Nancy, nerds. Whiskey, 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 Nancy, oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> King of the Fairies is a good one to play in bars because it just gets faster and faster. It's so good. <laughs> if, you, if you're ever bored and you want to look up some new music, look up sea shanties, look up bar songs, look up union songs too. Oh man, yeah. Whole minor songs. songs and union songs. Yep. Uh, the, the Chemical Workers song is so good. Oh, dang. Yeah. Talk about giving you chills. Yeah. Union songs are fucking good. Solidarity Listen, forever. If there's one thing humans love, it's smack thing to make fun sound and it's sing in harmony. Solidarity forever. The union makes us strong. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, uh, it's not a Red Ball recording if Izzy doesn't get to say how much Seer loves unions. I'm trying to start a union at work, finally. <laughs> Getting people together. Okay, we're working on it. It's a slow process. You, uh, you uh, get, getting your teeth into it? Yes. Shut up. <laughs> a triangle summons them for food, and they're joined by a bevy of young otters. Uh, and they're told, like, like, they're basically, they're all waking up and, like, being, like, they're past, like, these carved bowls and spoons by this otter mom. And she's like, you better get over there soon or it's all gonna be gone. And they do try to enjoy the soup, but it is to an otter's taste. on social media you can follow us on tumblr and reddit at abby archives and if you would like to help support this podcast you can find us on coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash hs enclave this podcast is part of hearthside enclave and some other shows you might like are hope's hearth a solar hope punk actual play podcast and post-apocalyptic news radio a fallout inspired audio drama <laughs>